Here we go on a Monday night. And don't you know, it's time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Uh, Mike Balsamo got a great show on tap for you tonight. Ira's not in studio. We're pre-recording this one. Good reason for it, though, Ira. Two weeks in a row here you are Monday Night Football. Well, I'm just right outside Raymond James Stadium right now, uh, ready to get into the stadium. I mean, it is awesome. The atmosphere, uh, Bucks game, weather is perfect. So I'm right outside. Literally, I put a set of studio. You're going to hear all music and everything because I'm right, right outside the stadium. So, um... You had a really busy week. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we have Jeff Perlman coming on. He's come on the show before. Tell us about Jeff and what we're going to talk about, because this is really a fascinating interview. Well, Jeff Perlman is probably the number one sports author in the United States. He uh, wrote a book about the 86 Mets, Bad Guys 1, Barry Bonds' book, Roger Clemens, Walter Payton. He was the, the inspiration to wrote the book Showtime, Three Ring Circus, about the Lakers, which you're seeing on The Winning Time, which you see on HBO. Had the Brett Favre book on Gunslinger. His latest book about Bo Jackson, the last American folk hero, uh, the great Bo Jackson. He is, came out as the number one book everywhere in sports. I'm so happy to have him on the show. He's coming up at the end. At the end. Yeah, so we'll get with Jeff Perlman right around uh, 7.35 or so. Ira, we've got some great interviews coming up, so people need to uh, stick it right here, Ira on Sports. What, what's, on the, what's on the docket? Next week, we've got uh, Super Bowl champion, Giants coach, legend Tom Coughlin, and the week after, we'll have Larry Zonka, Dolphin legend. So we are really got, you know, just Hall of Famers coming up, uh, you know, the next two weeks. And uh, with, with Tom Coughlin, who's going to, I can't wait to have him on our show, talk about, you know, beating Brady in the Super Bowl two times. And Larry Zonka, of course, the uh, fullback on the team that's the only undefeated team in the history of the NFL. At Ira on Sports, anywhere on social media, follow along with Ira's exploits. Got some great pictures uh, from this past week. So that always brings me to the question we start the show with, Ira, where have you been? Two days in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I mean, this is what we're talking about. We have a lot of new listeners now here down from Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton, listening over the radio. Uh, I go places. I was in, in Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta. Beautiful stadium. Watched the SEC Championship game on Saturday between Georgia and LSU and then the Falcons-Steelers game. It was easy. I just got to stay in one place and go to two games. A um, little bit different. Two and a half hours before they let you into the SEC Championship game. Only an hour and a half for the NFL, but love the stadium. It's easy to park. Just walk right in. Security is, is you know, you don't have to check stuff. It's, it's just a great new stadium. The club in the stadium is out of this world. I was at seats almost like the same seat for both games, both the college and the pro game. Uh, the food selection, they have donuts that are from the best donut place in Atlanta. They have barbecue. They have uh, everything you want. The pizza is real pizza, not micro pizza. And it's in the Mercedes clubs. So you have Mercedes logos, Mercedes cars, everything. It's not like, you know, when you go to Miami Arena, where the Heat play, you know, FTX and stuff like that. I mean, this is, it's like Mercedes, everything. It's all flush, nice. And the best thing is you get to go on the field before the game and you get to sit stand there and it's not just for a couple sections of some states it's like the entire club section can go down the entire sideline watch the players warm up i've got great pictures of like tj watt from the steelers the lsu georgia players it's just amazing for that and it was fun you know both games i just want to cover both is that you know the lsu game i would say it's like 60 40 georgia lsu uh, Steelers might have been 70, 30 Steelers, Falcons. Like, it's one of those games you go to and you're like, wow, there's a lot of Falcons here at a Steeler game. But boy, the Steelers fans really turned out for the game. Um, 
love the stadium, love the fact that there's windows on both sides, and then the roof was closed for both games, but you can see the roof opening up, and then it's this amazing scoreboard that goes around. It's not like on the sides like most stadiums. It's just on the top is this round scoreboard uh, where you can see the videos and replays and everything. So really a great place to watch a game. I love going there, and I was there last year for the SC Championship game, and, and just a great, great atmosphere. And we'll talk uh, more about um, that in just a second. We're going to talk NFL first here, though. And like you said, you're going to go to uh, Bucks Saints tonight. And I, I think some people are a little underwhelmed with this game. This looked like two teams that people had high prospects for going into the season, and they both kind of been middle of the road at best. Well, I guess, again, though, somebody has to win the division. Like, you know, it's one of those things where, <laughs> like, somebody is going to, and not only win, they're going to be a four seed and they're going to have a home field. So whether it's Tampa or Atlanta, you know, the Steelers have a 3-0 and record against the, uh, the NFC South. So, really, the Steelers could maybe be put in. But, of course, yeah, the Tampa Bay start out 3-5. and five. Then they they won the Rams. They beat the Rams. They beat the Rams at home, which was a that game. They won in Germany against Seattle, but then they lose to Cleveland. They're sitting at five and six. You know, after this game, they have to go to San Francisco. So after Monday night game, fly all the way to San Francisco. So that's going to be a really tough game to go on next Sunday. Then they play Cincinnati at home. Another super tough game. The way the Bengals are playing. Then they finish with Arizona, Carolina, and Atlanta. But this is sort of like one of those games where it's, it's a must win for them if they want to really uh, get this division and, and, and sort of buy some comfort. Um, and then, you know, New Orleans, 4-8. and eight. The last four games, they're 1-3. They're and three. They lost to Pittsburgh. They lost to Baltimore. They beat the Rams, but everybody beats the Rams. And they lost to San Francisco, 3-0. and oh. But in this division, you know, Tampa's 5-6, and six, Atlanta's 5-8. and eight. Carolina's 4-8, and, and New Orleans is 4-8. and eight. I mean, it's like laughable to say about these things. On uh, September 18th, the Bucks won 20-10 in New Orleans. And before that, remember, everybody knows it's been the kryptonite, the Saints have. You know, Brady's been 0-4 uh, in, in the four games before that, that first game, except for the playoff game. And in those four games, he threw eight interceptions. Uh, but, uh, um, of course, you know, in the playoffs, you know, that's when the Bucks won 30-20. to but this is, uh, in the franchise history, it's been 39-23 to 23 for the Saints. It's almost like one of those Oklahoma versus, like, Kansas State. You know, you think in the pro that one team would have such a dominant advantage, 39-23 in the series. Um, this Saints team, no Jameis Winston as a quarterback. They benched him after three games. You have Andy Dalton. Remember Andy Dalton for Cincinnati Bengals. He played for the Cowboys a little bit. Now he's here. He's thrown 14 touchdowns and seven, seven interceptions. Alvin Kamara, you know, everybody was drafted him first in fantasy year after year. Not really having that great a year, only 500 yards rushing, like 400 yards receiving. It's just average year for him. But the rookie to watch for the wide receiver, Chris Olave, remember from Ohio State, you see Garrett Wilson for the Jets. Olave's having a very good year also for the, for the Saints at wide receiver. No Michael Thomas. And their defense, that's what their calling card is. And Dennis Allen, their coach, who had Ma, uh, uh, Marshall Lattimore, who, you know, has been fighting with Mike Evans the whole time. So he's there. But their defense is, is tough. And they've, you know, they've caused Brady to throw those interceptions and, and turn the ball over. I mean, last year, that game that they lost at home uh, were shut out. If it, it, we, I went to that game. I felt like if they would have won that game, Brady wins the MVP. Like that was, to me, the MVP that game. And they would have clinched the division. Now, they ended up clinching the division later. But to lose that game at home, I think they were favored by like 10 or 12. Um, this game, only, the, the Bucks are only favored by three. And I think part of that line built in is the fact that people think, oh, well, they have trouble with the Saints. I really don't think this is the Saints team of last year's and the year before. Like, I really think that the three is should be six or seven. So I like the Bucks, you know, a lot in this game. The injuries, though, the Bucks are missing Sean Murphy Bunting, Antoine Winfield, Winfield, Mike Edwards in the secondary. Of course, Shaq Bear is out for the year. And uh, Ryan Jensen, of course, has been out as center, has been out most of the year. And Tristan Wilkes got injured in the Cleveland game. So 
But we'll see. You know, I think Rashard White is going to be key for this game for the Bucks. You saw how well he played against Cleveland. Uh, it was you have nine catches and using him. Off it. But look, Evans is healthy. Godwin is healthy. Julio Jones is healthy. Brady's numbers are almost exactly like last year in terms of percentages, but touchdowns are way down. It was 14 and two last two years. He's thrown 40 touchdowns. But the key for the Saints, you know, they've had 21 turnovers, only seven takeaways, the worst in the league. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens. I, I like the Bucks to win this game. I think this is – I think Brady's motivated to win. I thought the Cleveland game was weird. I thought they had that game won. They let it get away. Uh, they've been playing better. I so said they beat Seattle and they beat the Rams. I, I, I like for Bucks to win this game tonight. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Follow Ira across social media at Ira on Sports. Going to be uh, at that game that we were just talking about tonight. So he does some great pictures up uh, probably a little bit after that one ends. Let's talk about the game you were at yesterday, though, Ira. Steelers and Falcons. And this one, this was a hard game to pick. You really don't know what you're going to get from either of these teams. But a nice road win for your Steelers. A lot of Steelers fans don't want them to win. They want to get a better draft pick. But <laughs> as you're watching the Steelers play, you're, the question is, what is Kenny Pickett? Do you have your quarterback? The answer is, we don't know yet, but it's the returns are getting, you know, would you rather be having Zach Wilson or Kenny Pickett at, at the quarterback? I mean, the weird game, though, here, both teams, this is old-school football. The Steelers had 22 first downs, 10 passing, 11 running. Falcons, 18 first downs, 9-9. and um, and it really was a game of field goals. Steelers had four field goals and a touchdown. Falcons had three field goals and a touchdown. That one field goal was the difference in terms of the game. Pickett, 16 for 28, 200 yards, one touchdown, but no sacks and no interceptions. He has not thrown an interception in the whole month of November since I saw him against the Eagles game. And he's not getting sacks. He's throw, making smart decisions, improving. That's what you want to see in a rookie quarterback. Mariota, 13 for 24, one touchdown, one interception. Didn't run the ball a lot, and a lot of fans, the Falcons fans, were calling for Desmond Ritter, the, the rookie they drafted from Cincinnati, to come in the game. I mean, it, it, and after the game, uh, Arthur Miller, their coach, who was Arthur Smith, was uh, was not you know non-committal, you know, in terms of what he was going to bring in. Uh, what you like about the Steelers? Najee Harris ran the ball well. They had 150 yards rushing. Harris 17 carries, 86 yards. Uh, the one player that I hadn't seen for the Falcons, you consider know, game, Drake London, the USC uh, rookie. Wow, he's playing great. He's someone who's really going to be emerging on this team. I really like him. He's made a lot of. He had uh, six catches, ninety-five yards. For um, the Steelers, I know you're a big fan of DeAndre Johnson, Mike. Boy, drops. I mean, he had three drops, fumbles, everything. What a bad game on this. And they they don't throw a ball to Pickens. Now I started Pickens in my fantasy league. And uh, I was like screaming to throw it to Pickens. He got one pass to him, and they said on the side of the other announcer, like, well, they're consoling Pickens. I go, I needed them to come over to console me because they weren't using them <laughs> enough. But, but the game was, the game was uh, 16 6 years at halftime. Then they were not up 19 6, and they sort of just held on. I mean, they, they went three and out at the beginning of the fourth quarter. It was 19 13, and the, the three and out. And the Falcons used a 16 play, 64 drive. And at the end of the drive, it was like, it, it, you know, the funny thing is, at the meter, they go, crowd noise, you know, you know disrupt the Steelers. The crowd was disrupting. There were so many Steelers fans. It was disrupting the Falcons. They were the ones with the false starts, the holdings, and everything. And suddenly, they were, they, they, they were like, they were first to go to the 10, and they became like second and 22 on the 22. And then fourth and 10, they had to go a field goal in 1916. What we talk about on the show all the time, best offense, best defense is a good offense that's going to hold the ball. Steelers got the ball back. They got five minutes ago, got three first downs, held on. They forced, uh, they punted the ball down the one yard line. And then when the Falcons punted, you know, Falcons get the ball on the one, they throw an interception. First play to Minka Fitzpatrick, who else? And what does Minka do? Does he run in for a touchdown? I had the Steeler defense. I wanted him to, but he played smart. He just, you know, kneeled down, 
run the clock out, game over. And that was a smart move on his part. But, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those games where the Steelers now, you know, they're at five and seven. They're just, you know, they're not going to make the playoffs. They're not going to get the first trip pick in the draft, but you want to see improvement on the team. And I think that's what we, everything is about Pickett. And every game since the, this is a different Kenny Pickett from that Philadelphia game where he just seemed to just be bowling. Like I consider him a bowling. Like he saw receivers and like, can I just throw the ball through it? Now he seems to be actually thinking like an NFL quarterback and checking down. So, Ira, this was a fantastic week with some premier matchups, and one of them certainly was our hometown Miami Dolphins facing off against San Francisco. And this is, you know, Mike McDaniel from the Kyle Shanahan coaching tree. We were expecting a fantastic game, and Jimmy Garoppolo goes out immediately, and we really didn't know what was going to happen. But San Francisco did what they had to do to get a tough win here. I think this is a really bad loss for Miami. I mean, they were, I mean, Tua was 8 0 on the year, but, you know, you were concerned. No Taron Armstrong, no Austin Jackson, the offensive line. And this is a team that, what we've been talking about, Jeff Wilson and most are running the ball well. Well, they only ran the ball eight times for 33 yards. Um, Tua, six, a bad game, 16 passes for 16 out of 33, 295 yards, two touchdowns, but two interceptions and a bad fumble. Uh, first play of the game, Tua through the Sheffield, 75 yards touchdown. But how about the rest of the drives for the fence? This is a team that we've been going over every series. There's touchdown, 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 maybe a field goal in there. They went three plays, four yards. Three plays, three yards. Three plays, six yards. Three plays, 15 yards, and a field goal. I mean, it was uh, for the game. The Miami had 14 first downs, but only 0 for seven from third down on third down tries. They only ran 45 plays in the game compared to 80 for San Francisco. You know, the Finns had 13 drives in the game. 13. They were scoring at a clip. It seemed like 80, 90 percent of the time. They only scored three out of 13, and for of course four turnovers. But can you believe this? It was 17 to 10 at the half. The start of the second half, uh, the Finns started San Francisco to punt, and uh, and then uh, and then Miami gets the ball back. First and 25, two interceptions. Then San Francisco field goal, and then again, you know, they threw two and throws another interception. And so in back to back backs, he had three interceptions all year, and he threw two back to back. But then he, Tua throws the hill, you know, 45 yards of touchdown. So you're down 23-17. You're like, how could the Finns have played any worse? And they're still in this game. San Francisco punts. But then on fourth and two, they go for it. Uh, when they get the ball back, they're not able to get the first down. Controversial. You know, did Gusecki get the first down? Did he? You know, all that was there. I was at a bar, so I wasn't hearing the sound as much to see what they were talking about. But then San Francisco got the ball, got a field goal to a fumble, and then the whole thing was a mess. But uh, really one of those things where I don't think Miami could have played any worse, and they're still in that game. No, it, it was definitely, it was a weird game. And like you said, I, I don't want to say it's damning, but it's it's just not a good look for Miami. You know, you beat teams like Buffalo, and then to kind of just look like, you, you know, they lost their way a lot in this game. San Francisco now, Ira... Baker Mayfield got released today. You think that the 49ers bring Baker in here to, to right the ship? Are they going to stick with Purdy? What are you thinking? Well, I like Brock, uh, Bryce Purdy from uh, Iowa State. He played with Brees Hall, Brock Purdy. He played for Brees Hall, a lot of bees here. Brees Hall with in the Jets running back at Iowa State, which they underperformed as a team. So I've always liked Purdy as a player. A lot of people had him as a Heisman Trophy potential candidate. but um, But so I really think that – you know, it's why he was the last player taken in the draft, Mr. Irrelevant. But really, you know, the, they were past the trade deadline. When I saw Baker release, that's the first thing you thought is because, like, who else are they going to bring in? Like, I'm thinking, are they going to call Ben Rossiberger? Are they going to call Philip Rivers? Like, <laughs> like, Eli Manning, you know, he's out there playing. Like, like Peyton Manning, like, what are they going to do? Because they can't really, t- until Baker got released, who else? It's too late in the season to make a trade. 
So it's really, you know, they don't have Trey Lance. They don't have Jimmy G. They have Brock Purdy. They, it's, it's really one of the situations where maybe they bring Baker in or maybe they try – if they win with Purdy and with this great team and this great defense and all the weapons they have, then people are going to reassess why they're paying their quarterbacks $40 million a year. Because I think Purdy is, like, probably making, like, I guess, half a million dollars a year. So you can really save money on your, on your payroll if they're able to prove that it's to go with Purdy and win the title. One of the other premier games of the week was going to be Kansas City and Cincinnati. And a nice win here for Cincinnati. And I don't know if this necessarily put Joe Burrow into the echelon of Pat Mahomes and Josh Allen, but he's making a pretty good case, Ira. Well, I'll tell you what. The, the three teams in the AFC, it, it, it's really just three teams and nobody else. I, I, Buffalo, Cincinnati, and Kansas City. And this was, these games are coming down to like the end every single time. There was no Joe Mixon, but Samanche Pirine played great. But Jamar Chase is back, and boy, just Chase a difference maker for Cincinnati. Seven catches, 97 yards. When you look at it, Cincinnati overcame a 14-point deficit last year to beat the Chiefs at the end of the year. Then they were in the playoffs, and they overcame an 18-point deficit. So I'm not saying he's like the kryptonite of Patrick Mahomes, but he's the only quarterback with a like winning record against Mahomes. Uh, Burrow was 25-31, 286, two touchdowns and a sack. You know, they jumped out a 14-3 lead, so they, and Casey scored at the end to make it 14-10. And at the second half, each team only had the ball four times. The Chiefs had, took a touchdown to make it 17-14. The Bengals only scored a field goal when uh, Boyd dropped an easy touchdown pass. And you're thinking, after he dropped that, that touchdown, I'm thinking, boy, this is a Chiefs game. But Chiefs scored a touchdown, made it 24-17. Bengals just another field goal. But then the play of the game was Travis Kelsey. This is a chance for for uh, for you know them for Kansas City to like really end end this game. The Kelsey fumbles the ball on second eight, and you know and they get it. So it made it 27-4, and the Bengals get the ball, and the, you know we're able to you know just say we're not going to give. You know Chiefs went missed a field goal uh, when, uh, with 8:54 left, make it 27-4. They missed that field goal. Bengals get the ball back. They don't you know the best offense is the best defense, the best good offense. They kept the ball for the last five minutes of the game. Don't get Mahomes get a chance to get the ball, converting two third downs, a third and five, and a third eleven. Uh, just a big win. And you sell Mahomes on the sideline, like you know, you know, whatever. And the question is, should they have gone for the field goal down twenty seven twenty four with eight fifty four left? They were third and three on the Cincinnati thirty three. But uh, uh, Mahomes was sacked. You know, he gave up that sack and made it to fourth and seven. So maybe if they would have was like maybe it was fourth and two or fourth and one, they would have gone for it. But at fourth and seven, they chose to take that field goal. They missed the field goal. And but you know what? If they would have made the field goal, I really think Burrow would have gone down and scored anyway. I think they would have waited. You know, it seems like everybody knows how to play Kansas City. Just don't have Patrick Mahomes with the ball at the end of the game. This is Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, let's run through a couple of other games real quick here. I mean, Philadelphia making a case. Some people don't believe in them, but after what they did to Tennessee uh, this yesterday, I think it's time to start looking at Philadelphia pretty seriously. Yeah, I mean, this is the one thing. Tennessee's in the playoffs, but you really like you got to really like the Philadelphia scoring. You know, the 35-10. Uh, over and, and and everybody keeps doubting I'm one of them, but they look like they're going to get that number one seed in the East. Any other games you want to touch on before we move on to uh, NCAA? No, just Deshaun. How about the one game? It says Deshaun Watson comes back for the Browns. Uh, had a type of game I expected him. 12 for 22, zero touchdowns, one interception. They beat the Texans, but he had a bad game, and he's been out of two years. 
Jacoby Brissett, you know, they were looking for a quarterback. Jacoby Brissett was playing much better than Deshaun Watson. But I think we've talked about Deshaun Watson so much and he comes back to a game that's, that's sort of like, you know, hit it in the headlines or whatever and hey, the Browns aren't going to make the playoffs. But I guess that was the one other big game that we'll talk about. But, uh, you know, I think that the one, the one other thing is Lamar Jackson for the Ravens getting injured in this game. They beat the uh, Broncos 10-9. But the question is how long will Lamar Jackson be out and how that will hurt uh, Baltimore's playoff chances. Let's uh, go over to NCAA. You spent the weekend in Atlanta, pretty much, Ira, and we had Georgia LSU. And I'm, I remember, you know, you saying that you know if this is the SEC, um, if this is the SEC championship game matchup, this is going to be like a twenty point line, which is ridiculous. And that was pretty much what it was. Well, it was an eighteen point line, and they won by twenty. Uh, Georgia now has won every game uh, except one by double digits. They're thirteen and zero. It was a surprising game, though. I got to give LSU credit. So LSU comes out. They go down on the first round. They they get it. They 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 got like two first downs. We were like, what? How did LSU get two first downs? Then Georgia, you know, three and out. But they've been slow all year starting. Like you're waiting for Georgia to start. But then LSU drives all the way down. They're the goal on first and five. First first and goal on the five. And they were forced to settle for a field goal. But then they they, they kick the field goal. It's blocked. And it's crazy how the field goal is blocked, and it's, and it's blocked. And then everyone thought, okay, the play's over. They're running off. LSU's running off. Georgia's running off. But uh, Chris Smith for Georgia realizes the ball's still rolling. It's still live. He picks it up. You see the Georgia bench. I'm across from them. They're screaming, run, run, run. It almost looked like you're watching, like, at the end of the Steeler game, they brought, like, five- and six- and seven-year-old kids out there playing. That's how they were playing. It's like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to run the ball back. Literally, the LSU players were off the field. They weren't even on the field. They gave him a touchdown, so suddenly Georgia's up 7 nothing. LSU comes back and ties it with a 50-yard pass. They did 7-7. You're like, what's going on? But if you're LSU, you're like, man, we could have been up 21 nothing in this game. Georgia then another touchdown. They get 14-7. And then one of the weirdest interceptions, LSU throws the ball. It bounces off like two players, bounces off a helmet. I thought it hit the ground, but it hit a player on the ground on the helmet. Georgia gets the interception. And then really from then on, Seth and Bennett, it was just like threw a touchdown. McConkie to Washington, uh, the Bell made it 35-10. Uh, Jalen Daniels, uh, I got to give him credit for LSU. He hurt his ankle, but came back for like one last drive. And in the second half, I think Georgia just like, you know, they, they were up 35 10, but Garrett Newsmith, um, their quarterback, you know, their freshman uh, big name quarterback, played really well. I mean, he had a couple touchdown passes, but, and Georgia's defense was soft. I mean, Georgia gave up. Uh, 500 some yards for the game, but including almost 500 yards passing. It was crazy that they gave up so many yards. It was one of the worst performances from Georgia's defense. But I think it was just this weird game where they're up by so many points. They're playing prevent defense. Uh, Stetson Bennett, no Heisman Trophy love from him, but 23 for 29, 274, four touchdowns. And uh, you know, here's a guy who's you know could lead Georgia to back-to-back national championships. And no one's putting him in the Heisman Trophy. No one's saying he's going to be a first-round pick in the NFL draft. And he completes, you know, he improves every year. I think he's very underrated as a quarterback. And I've seen him play these make plays. These games against Tennessee, games here, really good. But, you know, Georgia did what they had to do, cement themselves as the number one team going to the college football playoffs. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Follow Ira across social media at Ira on Sports. Pac-12 championship game, Ira, and this is one you predicted weeks ago. Like, USC could definitely drop one of these games, especially facing Utah, and that's what happened. Well, to track me, you know, USC needed to score. It was like one of those, who's going to score first? They tried. They did against UCLA, against Notre Dame. Notre Dame moved it on them. USC has absolutely no defense. And then against the team, and then Caleb Williams, their Heisman Trophy, I think, winner, uh, enough, did enough to win that. It, you know, he got hurt, injured his hamstring, 
They just couldn't keep up. They look like Oklahoma. USC has taken Oklahoma. Oklahoma had that Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray and everyone else. They're throwing the ball around. They're amazing. And the defense was terrible. This is what this is what happened. They have got to get their defense better. And Kyle Whittingham, do you know he's a coach at Utah? He came, he succeeded Urban Meyer when Urban Meyer was a coach at Utah. That seemed like 100 years ago uh, that he was the coach there. And Cam Rising, their star quarterback who just was played great. This is, this is one of the crazy – USC, that first drive, they looked like they were going to win the national championship. They drove all the way down. They, kept, they went on fourth down. They scored. They, it was nothing could stop them. Utah did, you know, got a field goal, 7-3, but just saying, how can Utah kick in field goals if USC's doing touchdowns? Cal Williams in the next possession ran 59 yards, but on that play, he injured his hamstring, and he was never the same player after that. They ended up scoring a touchdown, making it 14-3. USC went three, out, three and out. But you're still like, wow, this game, you didn't know how injured Cal Williams was at that moment. But USC drove down first and goal in three. They were stopped. You know, they just made it 17-3. Can you imagine they were up 17-3 at really the end of the first quarter? They only scored seven points, and they were outscored 44-7 to by Utah the rest of the game. Um, just absolutely amazing in terms of – and what happened was, they, they, the Cam Rising fumbled the ball, so they could have gone up 24-3, and they went on fourth down. It was fourth today. USC was like, we can do whatever. We're, you know, we're a great offense. They don't, they don't get it. Utah just scores a touchdown, touchdown, ties it up at, at halftime. And then in the second half, Utah just scored and scored and scored. Uh, Cam Rising was 310 yards, three touchdowns. You know, the question is, Utah, people say, well, USC should still get in, even though they lost uh, – 247-24. I'm like, Utah should get in over USC. They beat them twice, and they won the Pac-12 championship. But uh, bad loss for USC. Clearly, after that game, no one was saying, no, USC is not going to be in the, you know, clearly cannot be in the college football playoffs. But I still think that Kyle Williams gets a lot of credit for hanging in that game. Through for 363 yards, three touchdowns, only that one interception. And uh, really, I think it was one, one great gutty performance on his part. But uh, definitely USC knocked themselves out and made USC, Ohio State, who was just sitting at home, that's how Ohio State got into the playoffs. You're listening to Iron Sports, the true oldies channel. Uh, great author Jeff Perlman joins us in about 10 minutes to talk about Bo Jackson, the last American folk hero. Ira, you have not put much stock into TCU all season. And what do you know? Another nail-biter here. Well, they they ended up losing. You know, they blew. They blew. They were down 18 against Kansas State in the regular season. Came back and scored 28 points and won the game. This game, Kansas State, and now I'm watching this game when I'm at the LSU game. So we're watching it, and they have the TVs everywhere, so I can see that what's going on. T State's up 28-17 in the fourth quarter. TCU gets a field goal, but Max Dugan, you know, he's he's Houdini. I mean, whenever they're down, he's coming back. He led the team. You know, he led the team back and 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 went. Scored a touchdown, went for two, 28-28, and they go into overtime, and you're thinking, okay, now you're in overtime. This is, you know, set up to, for, you know, all the momentum for TCU. But they go on third and one on the one. They don't give it to Dugan. They run up the middle. It doesn't work. They go they run up the middle again. It doesn't work, leaving Kansas State a chance just to kick a field goal and win the game. I thought this knocked TCU out, but I'm the minority on that one because clearly they got they got in. But uh, but a bad, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll, when we start talking about who's in the playoffs, but I just thought that was like this is TCU. I mean, they win these games, they play close games, they they hustle. But uh, uh, give Kansas State a lot of credit. They you know to 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 blow that lead and still come and win it in overtime and stop them. Great job for Kansas State. Big Ten Championship. Not many people thought that uh, Purdue was going to be able to hang with Michigan, and that was pretty accurate. 
I think the one takeaway from this game is Michigan won 43-22. Game was close. Michigan blows it out. Dominic Edwards. We talk about Blake Corum was going to be the, probably going to win the Heisman. Blake Corum plays that Ohio State game. He wins the Heisman Trophy because he wins. I think he wins it because then he would be the star running back. But their other running back is Donovan Edwards, who is played great. And you saw what he did against Ohio State. He ran for 185 yards against Purdue, 25 carries. J.J. McCarthy, another good game, three touchdowns on 11 to 17, 161 yards. But again, Michigan, they, their eyes on the Georgia, Michigan. If there was the old system where there's you know take the top two teams they play, this would be the BCS air. It'd be Georgia, Michigan. There's no doubt these are the two undefeated teams, the two teams that should be in there. There'd be no doubt, 100 percent would believe that those are the teams. That play and I think these two will play for the national championship but they have to go through another round of games ACC championship Clemson put the uh, put the romping on UNC well it finally Clemson pulled DJ Ungale their quarterback and put Kay Klubnick in it was a battle between Kay Klubnick the, the star freshman quarterback for Clemson and Derek May the star freshman quarterback for UNC um, and uh, Clemson blew him out but I think the question is for Clemson if they would have one loss would they have gotten over I mean this is one thing. If they would have had one loss, but they got over Ohio State with one loss, and if it may be a TCU, but the, 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 again, losing that game to South Carolina was bad. Losing the, the Notre Dame, the blowout, the two blowout losses really hurt Clemson. I mean, again, everyone's like, what's happening to Clemson? What's happening to Clemson? They can turn it around next year. They, they have a lot of talent, and their quarterback, I think they just, Dabo Sweeney was just so loyal to DJ Ungale this year, and DJ did not play that well. It looks like he's going to be the transfer portal and go somewhere else, and they're going to have next year. But you know, a tough. It was it was one of those seasons for Clemson where, like, when you get to a level when you're ten and two, and it's like a disappointing season. That's what you want to be as a program. And another championship game was uh, UCF and Tulane. Well, UCF, good year this year, 9-4, and four, but Tulane wins 45-28. Remember what this about Tulane? Tulane beat Kansas State. When Tulane beat Kansas State, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe Kansas State lost Tulane. That was so terrible. And then look at Tulane with this great year they have. Tulane's going to be in the Cotton Bowl. So, uh, so that was pretty impressive. What did some of the other bowls that uh, panned out so far? Well, UCF is going to be at Duke in the Military Bowl. Oklahoma is going to play Florida State at the Cheese It Bowl in Orlando. And Florida plays – this is when you look at bowls. Look at who's playing. And people are my, everyone keeps calling me up and they say, I have a question. Who's playing in this bowl? Like, who's, who's, who's going to win? I go, tell me what players are going to play. Because you're going to see all the seniors opt out. You're going to see uh, draft-eligible juniors opt out. Florida plays Oregon State. A lot of Florida players aren't going to play in this game. Oregon State's a young team. A lot of freshmen and sophomores still play. So that's what, when you look at these lines and when you bet the, these bowl games, look at who's playing, who's not playing, who's young and who's motivated. Don't look at the records. Don't look at how they played during the year. Just look at those things. Is that the teams that are playing in the bowl games are not the same teams that played in the year. So, Ira, the playoff is determined. It's going to be Georgia, Michigan, uh, TCU, and then Ohio State slid back in, uh, and they're going to get the fourth seed. Do you think they got it right? No. I, I think they got it right. I think they did. I don't think they got it right, but I, you could see where it's going. They want to TCU in this no matter what. And you know what they did? They played a little game with the rankings because they wanted to make sure that TCU looked better in this. Because And this gets back to Penn State. Penn State didn't play. They were, they were eighth. They were ranked eighth in the country in the playoffs. Suddenly they dropped down to 11. How did they drop to 11? Tennessee didn't play. They stayed at six. Uh, But, you know, Bama didn't play. They stayed at five. But Penn State didn't play at all. They dropped to 11. They did that so they could have Ohio State be four, TCU be three, say, oh, TCU is this big win over over Kansas State. Look at TCU's schedule this year. They beat Colorado 30-13. Colorado was 1-11 this year. They played a team called Tarleton. That's not not Tottenham. That's not a soccer team. They won that (laughs) 59-17. They played SMU with seven and five. They beat Oklahoma in six and six. Kansas. 
Georgia six and six. They were losing to Oklahoma State. They were up thirty down thirty to sixteen in the game. They won in two overtimes against Oklahoma State, who ended up seven five. Again, the Kansas State game we talked about earlier, they came back and won. Uh, they beat West Virginia. They were who's five and seven on the year. And Texas Tech, Texas Tech was up seventeen to three. They came back and won that game thirty four twenty four. Of course, the Baylor game when they barely won on the last second field goal, and they were six and six. I mean, on their schedule, the K State was the only great great, great game. I mean, to argue about Ohio State, I mean, Ohio State, they play Notre Dame. They, they, they beat Penn State. Not giving, they wanted to take away the Penn State game. They went to Penn State, who only had two losses of the year, 44-31. Notre Dame, besides, I mean, Ohio State, besides that uh, game against uh, Maryland, they blew out everyone, and then they had a bad loss against Michigan. But Ohio State was a dominating team all year. I just, you, they, I agree that you do not want Ohio State and Michigan playing two to three. That's why they moved to Ohio State four, and they left TCU at three, even though it should be the other way around. There's no way that one is better, you know, Ohio State, but they didn't want Ohio State and Michigan play in the 2-3 game. Michigan was happy with that, too. Um, and now the question was, well, why not Alabama instead of TCU? You know, Alabama had, a, they played, the problem is they didn't have these great victories. They beat Utah State 55 to nothing, University of Louisiana Monroe 63-7, Austin T. and their one game was Texas. They won 2019, but they lost, their two losses were for, you know, on the last play of the game, the Tennessee game at Tennessee, the LSU game at LSU. Besides that, they beat Arkansas, they beat Mississippi State, beat Ole Miss. You know, similar levels to what TCU. I mean, it's it, it just it's unfortunate for Alabama that the SEC wasn't stronger or the teams they played weren't better in terms of getting in. I, I would have put them like if they played. I think they should be in. I think it would be more exciting to see Alabama than TCU because TCU will play uh, Michigan, and I think Michigan. It, Michigan, the line is like nine. I think Michigan wins by 20, 30, 30 points. I, I think TCU is nowhere in a class. I think it's a complete absolute blow. Worse than what the uh, Cincinnati game was last. Last year when State played Alabama, like I really believe that it would have been more exciting to have Alabama in this playoffs. And I think with TC losing, it opened the door to put Alabama in, but they chose not to. Let's go to Jeff Perlman here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're pleased to have back to the show uh, the famous author Jeff Perlman on his book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Jeff, thanks a lot for coming back on our show. I feel like famous author might be an exaggeration. I think Stephen King is a famous author. Maybe <laughs> Michael Lewis is a famous author. I'm just a schlub carting around a book. But thank you. Well, you interviewed 720 people for this book, and uh, it seems like this is about his research. You wanted to have the definitive biography of uh, Bo Jackson. I think you succeeded in that. But talk about the title, The Last Folk Hero. What does that mean? You, you know, nowadays you look around and there's some, you know, some hot 16 year old kid who can throw a fastball in 98, you're going to see a video of it or some football player who's a high, a junior high phenom. We're going to see it on Twitter, you know, and it's all very deliberate, but back when Bo was coming along, it was all just rumor and innuendo and word of mouth and stories like folklore. And even now when we look back at Bo, a lot of the stories are folklore and, Oh, you should have seen this home run. You should have seen this. If only you saw this, he dented a car, he scaled a tree, all these things. We don't see it. We just have to believe it. And that makes him more of a folk hero and a mythological figure than an actual person in some ways. I grew up in the, with the whole Bo Jackson era, so I lived it. Um, people come back and look at his statistics. I mean, he rushed for 2,782 2, yards in 38 games. He had 141 home runs, 450 RBIs, 250 average not mm-hmm. close to being in the hall of fame. And mm-hmm. yet, if you ask someone today, you know, you ask the young kid, it's like, well, what, why, why do we need a big book on him? And I think that's what I think it takes out because it's more than just, he's way more than just the statistics. 
Yeah. And I think that, I don't know. I don't think most kids know about Bo Jackson or they know him in vague terms. And I hate that. I, again, he's the greatest athlete in my opinion, who ever walked the earth. I really mean that. And I always say like, in a way to go back to statistics a little bit, he won his, at McAdory High in Alabama, he won back-to-back state decathlon championships. That's five state individual track and field records. Was uh, a second-round draft pick of the New York Yankees. Stole 90 of 91 bases. Set a national record with 20 home runs in a high school season. Wound up going to Auburn where he ran a 4-1-3-40. Won the Heisman Trophy. Was a number one pick in the NFL draft. Would have been the number one pick in the Major League draft if they knew he was going to go to play baseball. Went to the Raiders. Ran a 4-1-7 on grass. Uh, is the only guy to ever play in a major league all-star game and the NFL pro Bowl, on and on and on. Like he's just, he could have been an Olympic sprinter. It's just, a, he's a ridiculous level of athleticism. And you did mention that he had a three, six seconds to first base, the fastest recorded time from uh, for right-hand hitter to first base and second fastest, second, second fastest. fastest. <laughs> and, uh, but remember you said four, one, three, 40, Let, let's remind that someone says they're four, three, 40 right now. That's super fast. And he's 225 pounds. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I always say Tyreek Hill is probably the fastest guy in the NFL right now. Bo outweighed him by about 40 pounds. And Bo Jackson was faster than him. Bo Jackson was faster than Tyreek Hill. If Bo Jackson were wearing pads and Tyreek Hill were wearing nothing but spandex and, and running shoes, Bo Jackson was faster than him. It's, and how it, many places and stadiums have the longest home runs that anyone has ever hit? Places that no one's hit a ball there, but Bo Jackson hit a ball there. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of my favorites is uh, he was taking BP at the Metrodome, the old Metrodome in Minnesota, and he hopped into the cage lefty and hit the longest home run to right field. And he did it left-handed in the history of that stadium. So just goofing around. Yeah, it's a different level. How about the other myth, or actually the story you said, a myth that you, you could confirm, but in the Superdome, when he was just standing there trying to kick the ball to hit the scoreboard on the top of the ceiling. Now it's different than it is today. You see it in the in the Cowboys stadium, but it was very high. He literally just took the ball, you said, and threw it up to the top. Yeah, so it, it only the scoreboard hangs from the middle of the stadium and only two guys had ever hit it as punters. One was a Vanderbilt punter in 1977. The other was Ray Guy. And Bo Jackson stands under it and he tries just the punter for Auburn, Louis Colbert, was trying to hit it. Couldn't do it with his foot. So Bo stands under it, throws, doesn't get it, does a second time. And they just, it's a dark stadium. They just hear, and he hit the thing. I mean, again, he's just, he threw a ball at Auburn. He threw it end zone to end zone. The quarterback at Auburn couldn't come close to throwing it end zone to end zone. He had the best arm on the team. He was a kicker in in high school. Just ridiculous. You mentioned one time. Oh, yeah, I just want to, these myths are amazing. How about when he hit the ball to like left field and ran around the bases before it was caught? Yeah, that's one of my favorites. That was when he was in high school and they were playing Fairfield High. He was a McAdory and he hit a ball to left field. And by the time it came down, he was rounding third. And I, I didn't really believe it. It didn't sound that legit. And I started interviewing more and more people who were there for it. And then I talked to the the actual left fielder, Eddie Scott from Fairfield High, and he swore to me that the ball was hit. He said, it's the highest ball I've ever seen hit. It comes down, and there's Bo rounding third. And I'm like, oh, my God. And he rounded third and scored on a high fly ball to left field. And you mentioned so much time in your book about growing up in Bessemer, Alabama, and he grew up poor, 10 people to a house. Um, his dad was there in town, but but not involved in his life. Uh, and, and the st- story of many other kids in terms of he could have gone either way. He could have been, a, he used to beat up kids. He was mean. He, he was, he, he could have gone to jail, but instead, you know, he found sports and that sort of changed everything. Yeah. And it always sounds like a cliche because there are a lot of stories of kids, you know, sports has saved a lot of kids and has made a lot of kids. 
And um, it always sounds cliche, but with him, it's really true. I mean, he was, he grew up dirt, dirt, dirt poor, single mom, Bessemer, Alabama, oftentimes wearing his sister's hand-me-down shoes to school. And if they were unavailable, he'd wear socks, just socks to school. He was a bully. He had a severe stutter. He was held back a grade, on and on and on. And, um, you know, his nickname, Bo, is short for Borhog, which is short for Bohog, which is a pronunciation in the South, because he spent three days, him and his friends, going to the neighbor's farm with sticks and trying to kill the largest boar hog they could find. And they just spent three days beating the crap out of this hog. So he was a bad kid and sports came along and he had this gift and coaches sort of saw it in him and and nurtured it and cultivated it. And here he sits. I mean, he's six years old now and he lives in suburban Burr, Burr Ridge, Illinois with his wife and his kids and he's a grandpa and he's had a really good life. And then when he grew up there, I mean, as much as he became a legend and people followed him, the town was so small, but there were other, I mean, I mentioned names, you, you put Marcus Dupree and there's that 30 for 30 special on Dupree. When you look at the grainy films, I mean, he was the famous running back that everybody was talking about. There was even running backs. You mentioned other running backs that people were talking about. I thought, I thought the one little story you had about recruiting was that Lee Corso, who we see on game day in ESPN was the first one to send him a recruiting letter. But yeah, uh, yeah. it, it was yeah. that whole high school, you know, with the track and everything that it, the legend just grew, but not, he wasn't the most famous high school player of all time. No, not at all. If anyone ever does a list and they say, 50 greatest high school athletes of all time, and they include Bo Jackson on it, they wouldn't even really know what they're talking about because most people weren't around to see Bo Jackson. And it wasn't like now we have scouting bureaus coming out. Now, like baseball scouts started coming because there was a guy, Kenny Gonzalez, who was a scout with the Royals, who very early on, he knew someone in McAdory and he said, you need to come see this guy. And Kenny Gonzalez went out and saw him and couldn't believe what he was watching. So there definitely was baseball interest early, but he was Football-wise, he was the fifth-rated player in Alabama. Uh, he was the second running back. The first was a kid named Allen Evans out of Enterprise High School, who was rated much higher than Bo on national scales. I mean, they were running back. Marcus Dupree, you mentioned, had schools camping out in Philadelphia, Mississippi, literally people moving there to recruit him and woo him. Bo Jackson was way under the radar. He also happened to play in a high school backfield with two other really good running backs. So he probably averaged 11 carries a game. He wasn't getting it 30 times. That's the one thing about his entire career. He was always in backfields, even in Auburn. And then even when he was the Raiders, it was with Marcus Allen. Um, mm-hmm. it was, he was Lionel James, other running backs at Auburn. He just, he never really, he rarely had games where he carries the ball like 30, 35 times. But I loved your recruiting stories about um, when he said, okay, I'm only going to go to Alabama or Auburn. And I just went to the Auburn. I went to an Auburn-Penn State game this year. So the first time I was down there at Auburn. What a beautiful place. And the yeah. whole story about Bear Bryant and Pat Dye and how he chose between the two schools. Well, I mean, I think he would have gone to Alabama if Alabama showed real interest, but they were very lukewarm. This was when when uh, Bear Bryant, it was his last season coaching. He definitely had lost a bunch of steps. He wasn't really into it the same way he'd been. And you have this guy under your nose who's a freakish athlete and you don't even realize it. And you, the defensive coordinator, Ken Donahue, was the main recruiter for Alabama in regards to Bo. And he told Bo, you know, we think you could be a really good defensive player. Well, that was, you know, red flag number one. And number two was, we think you can help us in two or three years. And that was red flag number two. And Pat Dye comes <laughs> along and he wants him right now. Now, the other thing that goes unspoken is there was a booster for Auburn who sort of circled around Bo's life and he was based in the same town and he was giving him money for this and money for that. Uh, I can't tell you if that was the reason he went to Auburn. I mean, Auburn gave him this golden opportunity. I think that was number one. But the booster culture back then was really sort of a thing. 
And then it was the whole challenge throughout his life. And I had David Marinus on our uh, show who talked about Jim Thorpe many, many years before that in terms of playing both, both sports. And that was the question. Are you going to go play minor league baseball for the Royals? Or are you going to, are the Yankees were the ones who drafted him? Or are you going to go to Auburn? And that became a whole challenge of it for the next decade in terms of, is he going to play baseball or football? I mean, I actually think if the Buccaneers hadn't screwed it up, he would have played football. I think the money of football would have been so grand. If, but, the you know, the Buccaneers, when Bo was a senior at Auburn, they flew him in to, uh, they flew him into Alabama, uh, to Tampa Bay to take a physical. And that cost Bo his eligibility um, to play baseball as a senior. And Bo never forgave the Bucs. So, I mean, I, one of my favorite stories in the book is that after the Bucs wind up drafting him anyway, even though it was a really dumb move. And, um, you Culverhouse, the owner, wants to wine and dime him in tape in Tampa. So they fly him to Tampa. And Steve Young is a Bucks quarterback at the time. And the three of them go out to dinner. And you Culverhouse excuses himself. And Steve Young is sitting there with Bo Jackson. And Bo says, Listen, Steve, just so you know, there's no effing way I'm ever going to sign here. <laughs> All right. We got that lesson down. So, like, he, you know, they really, I think if like the Raiders had drafted him out of Auburn or the Jets or the Giants or someone, I think the odds are pretty good he would have gone there. But he, uh, you know, he was stubborn and he was de- he was determined that he was not going to give into that. His time at Auburn, it was it was intriguing because he was, you know, again, came in as, as a sort of star, but and immediately emerged as great. But his second year, he almost won the national championship, but they they were sort of Miami, that greatest Miami, Nebraska game. And then his senior year. They thought he had a chance to win it. That you know, he won the Heisman. It was a great career, but it was still a little unfulfilling. Even if you can say winning a Heisman Trophy is unfulfilling. You know, it's funny. It's almost like who is it unfulfilling to? Like it was, it was unfulfilling to. People wanted him to be Herschel Walker. That's a thing. Like it, that's really the truth. People wanted him to be Herschel Walker. And at Walker, Georgia, at Georgia, Walker was a god. Uh, Vince Dooley was running that guy out of the I formation. You know, for 35, 40 carries a day. And that wasn't Bo Jackson. Like, he wasn't that guy. Also, he wasn't going to give you the emotional response you wanted. He wasn't going to be a monkey on a string for you. He wasn't going to dance for you. Like, he was very, like, stoic. And he was very, this is what I'm going to do. And um, it's funny in hindsight. He The thing that really changed the texture of that senior year is Sports Illustrated did a cover story um, about the Heisman Trophy and, and basically called Bo Jackson a dog and said uh, the Heisman Trophy should go to Joe Dudek of Plymouth State. <laughs> I remember that. That was ridiculous. Yeah. That was ridiculous. And I remember at the time being a kid and thinking, oh, that's kind of cool, Joe Dudek. And you realize now it's kind of some gross racist stuff. Like basically it's like we're going to support the little white scrappy kid from Division Three because we think this guy's lazy. And it was so like it was all these lazy tropes about the athlete who doesn't work hard, the athlete who takes himself out of games and like, it turns out one game Bo had internal bleeding. Another game he actually had gone horseback riding and a horse kicked his shin and broke the shin. And he didn't complain about it. He just played. So like he played in some weird times with some weird media coverage, you know. And the whole comparison with Herschel, I mean, Herschel was known for training and the thousand sit-ups, the thousand push-ups. And he was three years older, but they were actually the same height and same weight. And I remember you wrote in the book how they actually did a race against each other, which is pretty cool. That, that would have been a pay-per-view special to, now if they did that. I know, but it would have been very a very disappointing pay-per-view special because um, I was super excited to find the time they raced because there was all this talk they raced, but nobody remembered it. And they raced at a, in a college track meet called the Dallas Invitational. And basically... Uh, you know, people are kind of into it, Bo versus Herschel, and Herschel just blew him off the track. Um, Bo was a very inexperienced track runner at that point. Um, he had a lot of talent. Herschel was really good and really fast. 
but it was like it was basically one and done in the preliminary. That was the Bo and Herschel race. The one Auburn story I wish you would tell in the freshman year when Bear Bryant his what next, I guess his last game he coached um, was when he jumped over the, the whole idea where he scored the touchdown bow over the top was pretty cool. Oh yeah. I mean, that's probably the iconic play in the history of Auburn, Alabama still to this day. Uh, Alabama had won nine straight iron bowls and it was really the bane of Auburn's existence and Auburn's fans existence and all that. And um, you know, it's late in the game. They run this play where Bo leaps over the goal line for the score and he does it and he wins. And it becomes, the funny thing is this, it becomes this iconic play in the history of Auburn. And if you ask Auburn fans about it, they all know about it. Like all of them know about it. Right. And um, the next series Auburn had the ball again, trying to just lock up the game. They were winning. And Bo actually fumbled. They ran the same play, Bo over the top. And this time Bo fumbled and all Alabama recovered. And the stadium just there's deflation in the stadium. And and if Alab the Auburn's defense held Alabama and Auburn wound up winning. But if Auburn lost that game, Bo over the top would have been forgotten in history, and people would just be remembering Bo fumbling the ball as a freshman. <laughs> so he got lucky in a way. It's kind of funny. Nobody remembers that. So he decides the whole decision you just mentioned about Hugh Alcoverhouse when the whole, do I want to go to Tampa? Do I want to play baseball? And then he chose baseball. And I, there was a little story you had in there, which I absolutely loved. You talked about how Buck O'Neill, with famous uh, uh, African-American baseball player, who actually saw Josh Gibson and Babe Ruth play and heard, mm -hmm. you know, actually played with them, saw Bo play and said that only three, those are the only three that could actually, that had the power when he heard the sound with the hit, the ball hitting the bat. Okay, so I'm going to tell you something, and this is someone just asked me. You're actually the only the second person while promoting this book to ask me about that, and the first was yesterday. So it's weird, weird timing. I don't know. I'm skeptical. Like I know the story is true. Like he, Buck O'Neill definitely said that. I've he was sitting he was sitting while Bo was taking BP, and um, he hears Bo hit the ball, and he says, "I've only heard that sound three times in my life." Babe Ruth, Josh Gibson, and now. I'm a little skeptical. Like I've watched a lot of batting practice. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying he was, uh, I've watched a lot of batting practice in my days. I was a baseball writer for a long time. I get it. McGuire. So I saw all those guys during the PD era to hit these long shots and it was cool. Is it really possible that only three people made a similar sound and he remembered all three sounds? I'm calling BS a little bit. I don't but know. He could link. He could link Ruth and Bo. I mean, there's so few many people sure. that could actually say that I was there for Ruth and Bo. Um, but, you know, when he was in, in the Royals, he had George Brett as a teammate and he came in. You know, I, I know that your story of the book is, he, you know, he came in as not like the greatest teammate because he said, you know, he's this big star and the rookie should know his place and all those things. Well, he wasn't a great teammate. He was an OK teammate and it depended. He uh, he did some weird things as a teammate. The thing is, like. People think bullies only exist in high school, but they actually exist in sports too. And I'm not saying he was a bully bully, but he had some of that. And he uh, he would set up, he was a big archer and he would set up his target in the Royals clubhouse, stand across from it and shoot bows across the Royals clubhouse. Now, nobody liked that. Like nobody on that team liked that, but <laughs> nobody was really going to say anything to him. He also beat the living crap out of Kevin Seitzer for, he couldn't stand Kevin Seitzer, the Royals third baseman. And there was this fight in the club in the by the batting cages underneath the stadium where Bo basically choked him out and had to be separated from him. Um, he wasn't great about signing autographs. He didn't like signing baseball autographs during football season. He didn't like signing football autographs during baseball season. <laughs> the teams themselves never had his phone numbers. They didn't know how to reach him. He wouldn't give the, his number out. So there's one sort of funny, it just made me laugh reading about where Art Shaw is asked when he's the coach of the Raiders. So when is Bo 
is Bo coming Wednesday? And Archell's like, I think maybe. I'm not really sure. Like, because they actually did not know how to reach him. They had to go through his agent. So he was he was just a different kind of guy, you know. People are like, people will say to me promoting this. Oh, is Bo? So he's a great guy. And I'm like, I wouldn't say that. I'm not, I wouldn't say he's a bad guy. He's just really, really guarded. He's not super warm. You know, he is, he will bark at you a little bit. He's, you do not want to approach him during a meal, which is fine. That's, that's reasonable, but he's not your warm and fuzzy. He's not Deion Sanders, you know? And then you mentioned that when he, when he went to the Royals, when he was in college, he dated a zillion girls. It was everything was this, was that type of person who was out everywhere. But when he, he, he married, settled down, had three kids um, mm -hmm. and just lived a very quiet life at his house and hunted and do the, those things. He wasn't out on the town partying what we think of athletes, a lot of them today. Yeah. Yeah. He was not that guy. He kind of got sowed his oats in college and um, he just wasn't that guy. And in a lot of ways that probably hurt relationships, not that he cared. So it didn't hurt anything, but like, he wasn't going out with Marcus Allen and, you know, Cliff Branch and he wasn't drinking and he wasn't chasing women and et cetera, et cetera. There, there's no, no stories of him and Janet Jackson or Madonna, you know, there's none of that. He's just, he was kind of a boring guy in a lot of ways. Like it almost makes him more mythological. It really does. Like there are not a million pictures of him in nightclubs, not him outside studio 54 went on a visit to New York to play the Yankees. Like he just wasn't that guy. And then he decided to go to the Raiders. The Raiders drafted him. Um, and that upset the, his royal teammates. But also that was a big, you know, that was a big change. I, I mentioned, I bring up Jim Thorpe again, where he said, he, in the book he wrote, he said he watched the movie and thought it was to be intriguing to do baseball and football at the mm -hmm. pro level. But that was a big change to go and say, he told the Royals, I'm not going to play pro. And then he decided to go in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, the, the Royals were furious, absolutely furious. And his teammates were furious because if you're Willie Wilson or you're George Brett, and you've been on the Royals for a gazillion years, and you have it in your contract, whatever, you can't go water skiing, you can't play off-season basketball, things like that. And all of a sudden, this guy comes along, oh, and he's just going to play football, and you're just going to let him play in the NFL? Um, and the Royals repeatedly warned him, warned his agent, you know, what if you get hurt? What if you get hurt? What if you get hurt? And then he got hurt. So they weren't without reason for feeling that way. I mean, his football career was... Great, but you know, as I said, he only played 10, 11 games a year. And the iconic moments, the Bo, the uh, Brian Bosworth tackle. I mean, anybody should just go on and look at that. And you, you said it was only 500,000 YouTube views or something. I thought it was amazing. It's one of the most amazing runs where he ran over Brian Bosworth. And uh, that was tremendous. And it just became sort of this legendary football player, even though his team didn't make the Super Bowl and he wasn't running for over a thousand yards, those type of things. Well, he just had this amazing speed power combination. And, um, that game, actually, the Monday night game in 1987 against Seattle, people remember it for the Boz runover. But to me, there was this 91-yard run he had earlier in the game that is actually just magnificent. And I interviewed a lot of guys from the Seahawks. I mean, seven guys had angles on him on that run. One of their coaches told me that he was holding papers by the sideline. Again, this is like the full cure kind of thing. And Bo ran by, and the papers went out of his hands. <laughs> Dave Craig, the Seahawks quarterback on that 91 yard run said Bo ran by and he heard the whoosh behind him. Like he heard, whoosh. um, you know, I, there's just so many stories to tell. He's just ridiculous. And you talk about the swoosh. I mean, back in that second year when he was playing football in played really just four years of both sports at the same time, but they, when he was the best baseball player made the all-star game, the Bo had the Bo nose campaign. 
I mean, that was iconic. It was, he hits a home run in the all-star game and suddenly they run this crazy ad where they show Bo playing all, and it was, they were promoting the cross trainer, which and now we know what a cross trainer is. Back in those days, people didn't talk about cross trainers. So that was just, it all came together at once with Nike promoting him. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, that was amazing timing because the Bo knows that ad is still one of the most famous, maybe if not the most famous sports ad, Bo knows, Bo knows football, Bo knows baseball with all those athletes. And the Nike execs, they decided to run it, to premiere it during the All-Star game in the fourth inning. And Bo Jackson led off that game with his awesome home run to dead center. And it was just this moment of marketing and athletic synergy. And the Nike ad executives were all watching the game at Mickey Mantle's restaurant in Manhattan. And when Bo hit that ball, they all just went crazy and started jumping up and down and celebrating. And I'm sure the other people just in the restaurant just wanted to eat their hamburgers. But it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was great timing. And then you mentioned, of course, about his hip in 1990. You went through the whole incident. It's weird. Right after that, from my perspective, I had I fell in New York, and I they, I had a, they thought I had avascular necrosis. I went to a zillion doctors. This was two years after Bo, so that was on everybody's mind, and because MRIs didn't know how to read. So you mentioned how after he hurt his hip, like he was, you know, here he has this devastating injury that's going to ruin his career. But he's you know back going to dinner, doing interviews, he actually dressed for a practice. It was crazy how like they didn't really understand what that injury was to. Him. Well, nobody had had it in pro football. It was totally foreign. So um, it's just people didn't know. So, you know, the severity of it was when he got the realization of the severity of it was when he got a scan a day or two later. And uh, the doctor points to a screen and says, Bo, you see all that black? He's like, yeah, he goes, that, that's your blood pooling in your in your leg. And that really was an eye opener to Bo, like, holy crap. And, you know, what that disease basically is a cutting off of the blood supply to the hip. And ultimately, your your body part dies because it needs blood to function. Uh, it was a devastating, devastating injury that changed the course in many ways of sports history. And then he goes and it was amazing. Then he decided he was going to work and train and do all those things he hadn't done before in terms of just exercising and, and doing all the practicing. And he got back to play actually at the end of the baseball season for the White Sox, which is just truly remarkable that you could recover from that with with his own with his bad hip, not the not a prosthetic hip, but his real hip. Yeah, probably was bad judgment in hindsight because his hip was decaying, his leg was getting shorter, nothing was good about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then the guy goes on and plays two full seasons with an artificial hip, and it's a 1990s artificial hip. It's an artificial hip your grandma would have used. Um, it's remarkable. It's one of the most remarkable things of his career is that he uh, he was able to recover and just return to baseball. Not what he was, but return and play that way is unbelievable. And if people would look at his statistics, I mean, he's still in like 25 home runs. Like today, you know, it's like a Joey Gallo number, sort of like, you know, you get, you know, he struck out a lot. But today, you know, his game was sort of suited for today's baseball, where it's like, we don't want you to steal any bases, just hit some home runs, make them long home runs. That's all we need. So, yeah, no, I agree. And I am, um, look, he wasn't the same player at all. He lost his speed and he lost some of the torque in his bat speed, et cetera. But like, it was an amazing, amazing return. It is his biggest, in many ways, it is his greatest accomplishment. The idea that this guy came along and played two full seasons on an artificial hip when everyone gave him up for dead, uh, it speaks to his athleticism. And you mentioned when you wrote the book, first of all, I like that you went to Auburn and talked to, as I mentioned earlier before, you went and talked to 100 people, 99 people knew who he was. And I have to say, I was when I was at Auburn, I noticed that too. Bo Jackson's everywhere in Auburn. Um, but he didn't help you for the book. He didn't give you any interviews, but you're not holding any grudges. And you actually did talk to him on the phone. You wrote in the book a couple of times. Well, I would have no right to hold grudges. He doesn't, um, 
he doesn't have any obligation to talk to me. You know, like a guy comes along and he says he's writing a book on you. He's not, there's no obligation to talk to me. I totally get it. Um, and we, you know, we had a nice conversation early on. We really did. And he said, look, I'm not going to help you. I don't, I don't care if you're writing a book. It's just not something that interests me. And then you just go about it and you just report and report and report and dig and dig and dig. And I've said, I am, um, I got really lucky because he wrote a book in 1990 called, called Bo Knows Bo. And he did it with Dick Shap, who was a really great journalist. And I didn't know, but Dick Shap donated um, all his notes, all his audio transcripts, all the tape recordings to the Auburn Library. And I'm pretty sure for about 30 years, they sat in the basement untouched and unlistened to. So that was like a gift from the journalism gods to have all that material in front of me. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Can't wait to have you back for your next book. All right. Thank you. This is Iron Sports, True All These Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, baseball, the hot stove is starting to heat up already, and we see Jacob DeGrom got a pretty lengthy contract, longer than I would have given him. He's going to Texas, and the Mets say, well, what are we going to do? Well, let's sign the uh, Cy Young winner, <laughs> Justin Verlander, to a two-year deal. I, you look, if you're a Mets fan, you've got to be jumping for joy. Now, I know people say, oh, Verlander is a mercenary, but... Jacob DeGrom did not want to be a Met. He didn't seem excited about it. First of all, his injury history over the last few years has just been, it seems like he, he's not ready to play every game. He's injured, missing games. They signed him five years, 182 years. That's insane. And then Rondon, from the San Francisco, is looking for a six-year 200. Instead, you get Verlander, two years at 86. Now, I know you have Scherzer, Verlander. They're 100 years old. They're this and that. But, and I, I love, I hate when people say Verlander's bad in the World Series. He's won, the, he's won more playoff games than any other pitcher. So that, he's been good in the playoffs, just a little bad in the World Series, but he won his World Series start this year. So, but the point is, I think this was a great move. To sign Verlander for two years, consider this, Verlander and Scherzer are both making 80, what, $88 million the next two years between those two, which is more than five major league teams. But I think it was a great move by the Mets. Get rid of DeGron, put Verlander, who you know is going to pitch like 25, 30 starts a year. Uh, an amazing signing in terms of, of doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a huge win for the Mets. De DeGrom, if you're going to get 100 innings a year out of him for the next five years, I think that's a steal because he's just not going to be there. He hasn't proven to be reliable. Shoulder issues, elbow issues, and year three, four, five of that contract is probably not going to be looking too good. Too good and not too good is what happened to the U.S. men's national team, Ira. They have lost to Netherlands, and they are out of the World Cup. I tell you what, the Iran match was exciting. You know, that Christine Pulisic hits that goal right before uh, the intermission was an amazing play. Uh, they had to win that match against Iran to get in the knockout round. And then you're there on Saturday morning. Everyone's excited. And the Netherlands come down, and they score a goal. And, you know, I'm not, look, honestly, you know, where we had uh, Jonathan Clegg on our show, talking about Messi Ronaldo, I'm not the soccer aficionado. But when you watch the Netherlands pass, they look like they look like the Edmonton Oilers or Conor McDavid. Like, they, they look like Kevin A. Lightning. Like they, like they were, they were passing. It's like, wait, what? it seemed like they were amazing. How they, like Golden State Warriors, their their goals they had in America just was not in their level in terms of playing. And people said that you know Netherlands had played bad in the in the round robin format, but they really turned it on. And you know when they got out to the one nothing lead, the two nothing lead, and just cruised on to win that. Uh, but it's still America had the youngest team in the in the tournament. A lot of those players now are playing in MLS and playing, which is looks good. Um, but in Europe, and four years when it's in America, it's going to be huge. I mean, it, it, the question is where will the American team be in four years when the World Cup is played in America? And if they're one of the top eight teams in the world at that time, that's phenomenal, and everyone's going to be talking about soccer. Yep, I can't wait for uh, the World Cup to come back here to America. Exciting to be able to wait four years. Ira, what are you doing this week besides tonight? 
Well, I got the, the game tonight. I can so excited. I'm look, I'm right outside the stadium. It is. I love going to Bucks games. I, it's great, and this is going to be. I'm, I tell you, people should tune in this game because I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch this. Because I think the Saints are going to come out and uh, Brady. I, I expect. I think the Bucks offense is going to get started for this game. Um, and then next weekend, we'll see. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to plan. There's none of the Florida teams are at home, so it's hard to see where I'm going to go next week. But uh, we'll figure something out. But I, I'm excited for the game tonight. Thanks so much to Jeff Perlman for stopping by. We're out of time, though, on behalf of Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.